Now, Paul in chapter 2 is showing that God will judge self-righteous people and religious people. May I say to you that the man on top of the hill looks down at the man at the bottom of the hill and he says something should be done for that poor fellow. We ought to start a mission down there. We ought to start giving him soup and clothes and a shower bath. But I'm living on top of the hill and I don't need anything. You don't? The wall and the hurdle is as high on top of the hill as it is at the bottom of the hill. And the man at the bottom of the hill can get over it just as easy as you can. And the chances are he'll see his need and you won't. May I say to you, religious people, self-righteous people, so-called good people need a Savior. And Paul is going to put down here six great principles by which God is going to judge so-called good people. He says here in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same thing. Now, this, by the way, is the very important issue in this chapter. Chapter 1, it revealed the unrighteousness of man. Now, chapter 2 reveals the self-righteousness of man. And it's well to keep in mind here that Paul is not talking about salvation. He's talking about sin and the basis on which God will judge men. These six principles of judgment are not the basis of salvation. It's the basis of judgment. I don't know about you, I wouldn't want to come up and under him. I thank God for a Savior today. And Scripture presents the gospel as the only means of obtaining eternal life. To reject the Son of God immediately brings upon a person the judgment of God, and the only verdict here is guilty. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, shall not come in condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And then listen to the Lord Jesus after that marvelous, wonderful John 3.16. And we generally stop that. But he says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's John 3.36. So that these are lost today that do not have Christ. And you may be a religious person, may be a good person, but without Christ, my friend, you're lost. And now he says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. The word man here is anthropy. It's the generic term. It can mean both men and women. It includes both Jew and Gentile, and refers to mankind in general. Mankind, whosoever thou art, that judges, 
Now, he passes now from the general to that which is specific, from that which is the mass to the person. And he addresses any person of the human race, but he limits it to those that judge others. Now, the word here for judge carries the thought of judging with the idea of an adverse verdict. It can be whosoever thou art that condemnest another. Therefore, that raises the question, what should be the attitude of a believer today toward this awful, horrible group that are mentioned here in Romans 1? It should be this. We should want them to get saved, and we should try to get the gospel to them, that they are poor, lost creatures. And I think we should be able to use the words of the old hymn, Rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave, weep o'er the erring one, lift up the fallen, tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. And my friend, that should be our attitude, wanting their salvation, but making it very clear that they need to be saved and need to be delivered from this gross perversion and immorality today. Now, the very interesting thing is that we may get the wrong impression here. It says, For thou that judgest doeth the same things. The word is auto. We get from that automobile and things like that. What he means here by the same things, he does not mean identical things but things that are just as bad in God's sight as the things done in awful depravity by the heathen and the lost, and are offensive to the cultured and refined sinner. Now, here is the thing that he's saying, simply this. You that sit in judgment on these people, how many people today, they can tell you that Hitler... I heard a man who's not saved say that he didn't believe that hell could be heated hot enough for that man. My friend, he's sitting in judgment. He's taking the place of God. He says he doesn't think Hitler is fit to live. And there are a great many people that condemn today the communists, and they condemn the radicals. And I'd rather join you there, by the way. But may I say to you, we're doing the same thing. Thing and we are guilty of doing the same thing. And somebody says, wait a minute, <laughs> I don't do those things. May I say to you, you today are sitting in judgment on those that are not on your plane. You use the society's standard, and it varies, by the way. And if somebody doesn't come up to the standard of your little group, believe me, you'll condemn them. I know a lot of the saints, if a man walked in, With a cigarette in his mouth, they'd consign him to the lowest regions of hell. That to them is worse than gossiping, and it's worse than being dishonest. And I know some fundamental churches where you can get by being a liar, you can get by being a gossip, you can get by being dishonest, but you can't get by smoking a cigarette. They condemn you. The fact that you judge other people, you are assuming that position. Now, God is saying... By the same token that you have the right to judge other people that don't measure up to your standard, God has the right to judge you by his standard, not your standard. And therefore, God judges by his standard. 
A great many folk think that they're well-pleasing to God. Someone has put it like this. If we could see ourselves like God sees us, we couldn't even stand ourselves. We are obnoxious. We are repugnant. We are lost sinners. What contribution can you and I make to heaven? Will we adorn the place? I get the impression from some people that my heaven's going to be a better place when they get there. This earth hasn't been a better place because they've been here. You try to deny to God the same privilege that you have of sitting in judgment on others. My friend, God is going to judge you. And he won't judge you by your standard or the standard by which you're judging others, but by his standard. Does that begin to move you? It ought to, because I found out I can't come up to his standard. Now he goes on and he puts down now the first great principle. For we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Now, when he says we're sure, he says we know. We know that the judgment of God is according to reality. You know, there's so many folk today, including church members, who live in a world of unreality. They do not want to hear the truth of the gospel. Now, I hear a great many pious folk that have said, Oh, you know, I just want Bible study. I do want to study the Bible. Then they get into the Word of God, and they found out, as John found out in the book of Revelation, when he began to see the judgments of God. When he first started out, it was thrilling. It was sweet in his mouth. But when he ate that little book, it gave him indigestion, bitter in his belly. And there are a great many Christians that is church members. They say they want Bible study, but they don't want reality. They do not want to look at the truth. We know that the judgment of God is according to reality against them which commit such things. Now, this is one of those great principles. And these are the principles of judgment, and they are not the principles of salvation. Man has an inherent knowledge that he must be judged by a higher power. And the coming judgment of God is something every man out of Christ either dreads or denies it. And the Scripture is very clear. Paul said to the Athenians, "...because he hath appointed a day in the which he'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, wherefore he hath given assurance unto all men that he hath raised him from the dead." Now, Paul reasoned, you remember, with Felix about righteousness and self-control and judgment to come. And it frightened this fellow Felix. In fact, he didn't want to hear another sermon. The judgment of God's in contrast with man's judgment. Man does not have all the facts, and his judgment is partial and prejudiced. God's judgment takes in all the facts. But here the thought is the actual state of man, just what he is. I used to pick cotton as a boy, and I wasn't very good at it. I know I'd bring in a sack of cotton, and they weighed it. And they only weighed what you brought in. And the man weighing the cotton, he didn't ask me where I picked it or how I picked it or to whom it belongs. He just weighed it. And God says, Thou art weighed in the balances, in God's Word. To every man that boasts of his morality. I think the great delusion of the cultured person 
is that the depraved person must be judged, but he's confident that he'll escape because he's different. Most people believe Hitler and Stalin ought to be judged, but they think they should escape. God will judge man for what they are in his sight. You want to stand before God on that basis? I don't. Now, will you notice the next? He moves on down here, and he says, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? You know, down here, every criminal, as far as I can tell, always feels that he's innocent, ought not to be punished. I used to hold services in the penitentiary in Nashville, Tennessee, and I never dreamed there was so many innocent men back of bars. Nobody there seemed to be guilty. Just a group of innocent men that felt like they ought to be out. And every man feels this. Gove called attention to the four ways of escape in the judgment. And one is the criminal thinks his offense will not be discovered. And then, if it is discovered, he may escape beyond the jurisdiction of the court. He may cross over the border. And the third is, after arrest, there may be some legal technicality which will cause a breakdown of the legal procedure. And it's almost ridiculous, our courts in this country today, some little legal technicality will let a criminal off who's definitely guilty as sin. And the fourth is, after conviction, he may escape from prison and stay undercover. And my friend, none of those avenues are open to you when you come before God. <laughs> Your offense will be discovered. You can't escape beyond his jurisdiction. There'll be no legal technicality and you'll never be able to escape from prison. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Then he says, Or despisest thou the riches of the goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? You know, we ought to recognize today that the goodness of God is something that ought to bring us to our knees before him. But instead of that, it drives men from God. David was disturbed by the way that the wicked could prosper. God didn't seem to do anything. In Psalm 73, David says, I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood therein. They're going to be judged, my friend. And by the way, if you're a lost man, don't think I'm a preacher that's going to take anything away from you. Somebody said to me, says, well, I guess you would like to take liquor out of this country. Well, I think it'd be good if we could take it out, but I'm not in that business. Because I want to say to the lost man, if you haven't trusted Christ and your only hopes in this life, brother, you better suck this earth like it's an orange, and get all of it out of your can, drink all you can, sin all you can, because I want to tell you one thing, you won't have anything over there. You better get it while you're here, if that's the way you want to live. Eat, drink, and be merry, or you die. My friend, you need a Savior, and God's going to judge. And the goodness of God ought to lead you to it. But he says, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up, 
thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And many of you listening to me a day that are not saved, you know God's been good to you. God has blessed you and didn't bring you to him, did it? May I say that makes your judgment all the worse? When you think of the starving today in Calcutta, India, and you think of you a wicked man, you're just living on top of the world. You think God's not going to judge you? You think that somehow or another you are going to escape? Well, my friend, the very goodness of God ought to lead you to repentance. Then we come to verse 6 here, and this is the second great principle. Who will render to every man according to his deeds, and he shall reward every man according to his works. Absolute justice is the criterion of the judgment or rewards. Man's deeds stand before God in his holy light. No man in his right mind wants to be judged on this basis. Why, that was Cornelius. He was a good man, but he was lost. And then he says, "...to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life." And we have here a series of things that are coming up for judgment. And these are the things God will judge men for. I'll not take up that list, but I'm going to drop down out of verse 11 to the third principle. There's no respect of persons with God. You see, this is a great principle of the Old Testament. For the Lord your God is a God of gods, Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. Can't buy them all. That's Deuteronomy 10:17. And God's no respecter of persons. Simon Peter found that out when he came to the home of Cornelius. May I say to you again and again, the Word of God refers to that. God won't play favorites. He has no pet. All men are alike before him. Justice is blindfolded, not because she's blind, but that she may not see men in either silk or rags. All must appear alike. Church membership, a good family, and even having a fundamental creed give you no advantage before him at all. Do you have a Savior, or don't you have a Savior? And we're told, for as many as have sinned without law shall perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. And this is another great principle by which God is going to judge today. For notice, and it's expressed in verse 13, For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. I wish I had time to go in that. The heathen are lost without the law. They're not lost. A great many people say they're lost because they haven't accepted Christ or haven't heard about Christ. My friend, they're lost because they're sinners. That's the condition of all mankind. Men are not saved by the light they have. They're judged by the light they have. And it's not the hearers of the law. A great many people think if they just approve the Sermon on the Mount and think it's a very nice document, that means they're saved. My friend, that's not the basis at all. Now we find in verse 15 here the fifth great principle, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, the conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing them. God can and will judge the heathen by his own conscience. May I say to you that we think that today, that somehow or another, 
The heathen, because of the fact that they don't have the revelation, but they're not even living up to the light they have. God will judge them on that basis. Verse 16, "...in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." Now, that's the basis of judgment. This idea that because I happen to be a good man, that is, I think I am, that I'll be saved. God's going to judge the do-gooders, and he'll judge him on the basis of what they've done by Jesus Christ and the secrets of the human heart. You want the secrets of your heart brought out? Not the lovely little things you said, but the dirty little thoughts that came to you. All of that will be brought out. I thank God that I have a Savior today. And we have here now God's going to judge religious people, the Jews in particular, because that was a God-given religion. They're to be judged. He says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, makest thy boast of God, knowest his will, approvest the things that are more excellent, being catechized out of the law. Now, those are the things they could boast of. They are confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which has the form of knowledge and of the truth. Now, here's Paul's question. Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? My friend today, church member, let me be very frank with you. Are you really living up to the light that you have of the Word of God? Are you just making a profession of it? May I say to you that every person knows within his own heart that he comes short of the glory of God. And your religion may reveal to you some very high principles, but are you living by them? Are you doing them? Here was a God-given religion, and for over a millennium, these people tried to keep it. They found out that they could not. They could not measure up to God's standard, and you cannot. Religion cannot save you, but Christ can save you. He alone is the Savior. Not religion, not your church membership, not your fundamentalism. <laughs> Christ is the Savior. You either have him or you don't have him. You either trust him or you don't trust him. The basis on which God will judge people, my friend, not the basis on which he saves them. Christ is the Savior. Religion will condemn you. Your own religion won't save you. It condemns you. The law was a ministry of condemnation. Now, Paul is saying this. In fact, he takes up three common sins, and these are the common sins, actually, of believers today. Immorality is one. That's a sin against others. Sensuality, sin against self. And idolatry, sin against God. And over in chapter 1, he took those up in verse order. Idolatry was the terrible climax for a Jew. He could have gone no farther than that, by the way. But today, we, I think, would put it in this order. Immorality, sin against others. And sensuality, sin against self. Idolatry, sin against God. 
and anything that makes a mockery of God. And sometimes our lives, we're supposed to represent Jesus Christ. But how many times you and I fail down here and we make a mockery of the person of Christ? I do not like to see pictures of him. But we're all a gospel written in fleshly tablets of the heart, and that's what the world is reading. You're writing a gospel, someone has said. You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by deeds that you do and words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true. What is the gospel according to you? We make a mockery sometimes of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, these are the sins that he's talking about. Now, he deals with something that's very vital and important. In verse 25, he says here, For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. You see, circumcision was a badge of the Mosaic system. And friends, that's all that it was. There was no merit in the rite itself. It was just a badge. And that badge indicated that the man must believe something. Now, for them to be a transgressor of the law and be circumcised, actually, it twists the thing around and brought it into disrepute. And that which should have been sacred becomes profane. Now, let me bring that very much up to date, and this is going to rub against some of you, and you're going to get hurt, and maybe you ought not to listen right now. But notice this. Water baptism is rightly a sacrament of the church. And very candidly, I was brought up in a denomination that practiced sprinkling. I personally think that immersion better sets it forth. But now don't draw any conclusion from that, because listen to what we have to say. Water baptism is rightly a sacrament of the church if it is the outward expression of a work of God in the heart. But it's a mockery if the person baptized gives no evidence of salvation. And I think that a great deal of church membership And these folk that join, 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 and their lives absolutely bring the cause of Christ into disrepute. And it makes a mockery of church membership. And that is the thing that he's saying here. Listen to him as he continues. He says, Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Let me use another figure of speech. If a wife loses her wedding ring, or a man, for that matter, a husband, that does not mean that he or she becomes unmarried. Marriage is more than a wedding ring, though this may be the symbol of it. And now listen to Paul as he continues, verse 27, And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. You see, what he's saying here is this, that to wear a wedding ring, which speaks of something sacred, and then to be unfaithful to that which it stands for, it makes that wedding ring a disgrace. I was in a motel. I saw a man that 
was a deacon in a church in another city, sitting at a table, talking to a very friendly, beautiful young lady who was not his wife. And the thing that to me was amazing, his left hand was over the side of the table, the light was shining on his wedding ring, and it just stood out. And I thought, what a mockery. When the man saw me, believe me, he was embarrassed by it. Of course he was. But you see, that wedding ring was meaningless. And therefore, Paul is trying to say circumcision should stand for something. Now, therefore, the law had already stated circumcision is really of the heart. Listen to Moses in Deuteronomy 10:16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no more stiff-necked. That is what God had said to these people. Now, will you notice what Paul is saying in chapter 3, verse 1? What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? The word profit here means actually that which is surplus, that which is above, that which is excess. And the question now has to do with the outward badge of God's special covenant with the Jew, circumcision. Now, it looks as if Paul is in danger of erasing a distinction which God made. Now, the question is, if Jew and Gentile are on the same footing before God, what then was the supposed advantage of the Jew, and what good is circumcision? Now, let me give you a statement of Dr. James Stifler. He says, if circumcision in itself does not give righteousness, if uncircumcision does not preclude it, what profit was there ever in it? A distinction that God made among men seems, after all, not to be. Now, this is the same question I think that you hear today. I get it because of the gospel that I preach that says church membership has no advantage for salvation. Any rite or ritual you go through is meaningless as far as salvation is concerned. God has the world shut up to a cross. He's not asking you to join anything or do anything. What God is asking the lost sinner to do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall be saved. And until he answers that question, then God hasn't anything else to say to man. Now, after he's saved, then God will talk to him about church membership, I think and talk to him also about baptism. And so people say, well, doesn't my church, my creed, my membership, my baptism help toward my salvation? The answer is no. It doesn't help you toward salvation. But if you are saved, then these things are a badge, and these things are a means of communicating to the world who you are. But if you're not measuring up, then your church membership and your baptism is a disgrace, actually, And instead of being sacred, it becomes profane. Now, Paul's going to answer that question. And what advantage then did the Jew have? Now, follow me very carefully. Paul says, much every way, chiefly because that under them were committed the oracles of God. Now, Paul is saying, yes, the Jew had an advantage. The advantage, however, created a responsibility. And this advantage is something that we need to note because there's more confusion in this area than any other. I know 
Men teaching today in theological seminaries that make no distinction between Judaism in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament at all. Now, Paul is making it clear here that God not only gave to the nation Israel the oracles of God, they were the ones that have communicated the scriptures. They are the ones that got the word of God. And not only that, Paul is saying that not only did he give them the word of God, but in the word of God there was something special for them and that God is not through with the nation Israel. I always listen to these theologians today at that particular point. Does God have a future for Israel? And my friend, if God doesn't have a future for Israel, I don't think he has a future for you either or that theological professor because you base it on the same word of God. And God is going to make John 3.16 good. And God's going to make the covenant he made with Abraham good in the 12th chapter of Genesis also. Listen again to Dr. Stifler as he wrote this. Speaking now of Israel, his advantage was not that God sowed Judaism and the world reaped Christianity. That blots out Judaism. It was first of all that under them were committed the oracles of God, not that they were made a mere Bible depository, but that God gave them as Jews promises not yet fulfilled, and peculiarly their own. The Old Testament, the record of these oracles, contains not one promise either of or to the church as an organization. It does not predict the church. It foreshadows a kingdom in which the Jew shall be the head and not lose his national distinction as he does in the church. Now, friends, I think that's one of the most important and profound statements that have been made concerning the Word of God. And here is where your great theologians, well, they call themselves great, or let me put it like this, they call each other great. It's marvelous today how degrees are being handed out. One theologian gives another theologian a degree and pats him on the back, and then that fellow turns around and gives the other man who patted him on the back a degree. I'd be very frank with you. This is important, very important. Now, Dr. Safer, Adolf Safer, he was a converted Jew, and he's made this tremendous and poignant statement. Listen to it. The view that is so prevalent that Israel is the shadow of the church, and now that the type is fulfilled, vanishes from our horizon, is altogether unscriptural. Israel is not the shadow fulfilled and absorbed in the church, but the basis on which the church rests. Friends, that's an important statement, by the way. Now, that's what Paul is saying here. But you had a great advantage. God has a future for him, and that his faithlessness will not destroy God's promise. Listen to him. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? If some were without faith is better. Translation, shall their lack of faith cancel out the faithfulness of God? You see, this is another objection that would be put up. And Paul meets this by going back to the first. Now, if the advantage of the Jew did not serve the intended purpose, does this not mean God's faithfulness to his people is a null? The Jew fail? Then shouldn't God fail? No. 
God's promise to send Israel the Redeemer was not defeated by their willful disobedience and rejection. All his promises for the future of the nation will be fulfilled to his glory in spite of their unbelief. Now, my friend, you may not like that, but I personally thank God that his promises to me do not depend on my faithlessness. Oh, thank God for that. I'd have been lost long ago. Thank God for his faithfulness. Listen to Paul now. He says, God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. In other words, the unbeliever that raises this question is a liar, and God's going to make him out to be a liar someday. Why? Because the faithfulness of God is true and cannot be changed. How important that is. John says this in 1 John 5:10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. How bad is it not to believe God today, that he gave his Son to die for you? Well, I'll tell you how bad it is. You make God a liar. And it's not nice to call somebody a liar, you see, but that's what you do when you reject his Son. Now, the whole point is this. All right, if my unrighteousness reveals the marvelous, wonderful, infinite faithfulness of God and the grace of God, then has God a right to judge me. That's what Paul is saying. And by the way, as Dr. David Brown said years ago, this makes it very clear that the unsaved world in Paul's day understood Paul was preaching salvation by the grace of God. Now, I'm going to pick up at verse 5, but if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. And this means that does it establish? And Paul meets this objection here. You see, by some subtle sophistry, it might be argued that since the nation's unbelief merely puts in contrast the faithfulness of God, then God's not just to punish that which brings greater glory to himself. In other words, the better translation is God unjust who visiteth with wrath for judging these people. Now, this is the severest criticism that Paul faced in preaching the gospel of the grace of God. If God uses sin to get glory to himself, then he should not punish the sinner. This, of course, was used by some as an excuse for sinning. We'll find that again in Romans 6.1. We'll deal with it then. Paul asked the question in such a way in the Greek as to demand a negative answer. God is not unjust. He says, I speak as a man. Doesn't mean that Paul is not writing this particular passage by inspiration, but rather that he's presenting this question from the finite and human standpoint. Then in verse 6, God forbid. Then how shall God judge the world? Paul's answer is again an emphatic and categorical denial of any such premise that God's unjust. The argument here is that if this particular sin merely enhances the glory of God and the grace of God, 
then all sin would do the same. Therefore, God would not be able to judge the world. He would abdicate his throne as judge of all the earth. And every person acknowledges that there are some folk who should be judged. You see, this specious argument forbids their judgment. Hitler ought not to be judged. Now, verse 7, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? A lie is moral falsehood. Each individual could claim exemption from the judgment of God because his sin had advanced the glory of God. And then he says, And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. In this verse, Paul drives his argument to its logical, untenable conclusion. This is called an argumentum ad absurdum. If sin magnifies the glory of God, then the more sin, the more glory. Some had falsely accused Paul of teaching this absurdity. It was ridiculous, for it was Paul who insisted that God must judge sin. As surely as there is sin, there must be judgment. You see, this facetious type of argument, which Paul has met here, makes a Robespierre a saint in the name of utilitarianism. It's the old bromide that the end justifies the means. Now we come to this section here where we have the accusation of guilt by God against mankind. And he's going to conclude this section of sin by bringing mankind up before the judge of all the earth. And the accusation of guilty is made by God against all mankind both Jew and Gentile, black and white, male and female, rich and poor. It doesn't make any difference who you are. If you belong to the human race, you and I stand guilty before God. And then he's going to take us to God's clinic. And it's a real spiritual clinic. And the great physician is going to look at us. Now, let's come to that. That is, to this section here. And by the way, we see that there are 14 different charges made. Six of them before the judge, and the other eight of them of the great physician, who says we're sick. In fact, we're sick nigh unto death. To tell the truth, we're dead in trespasses and sin. That's our condition. Now, I begin at verse 9. What then are we better than they know in no wise? For we have proved both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. He's doesn't mean proved here. That word is a little too strong. It's not quite the shade of meaning, because Paul is not trying to prove man a sinner. He's showing that God judges sin. He assumes man is a sinner. You don't have to assume it. It's evident. There are certain truths that are self-evident, we're told, and this is one of them. And we find in the Word of God, man's a sinner by act, by what he does. And man is a sinner by nature. Man doesn't become a sinner by sinning. He sins because he is a sinner. We have that nature. Man's a sinner by imputation. We'll see that later on. And then the estate of man is under sin, as we're told here in this verse. We are all under sin. And that is the entire human family, by the way. Now, let us then... Come here and take a look at verse 10. 
He's concluded now, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Now, it should be, it is written that there is none righteous, no, not one. And here we find there's none that doeth good. That doeth good and righteous are actually the same. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, it means to be right. And who are we right with? Well, we're to be right with God. And if you're going to be right with God, it's a little different than being right with your fellow man. We have a difference with some friend of ours. Well, we may be to blame, or he may be to blame, and we may have to reach some sort of a compromise. But, my friends, if you're going to be right with God, you're going to play according to his rules. You can't play games with him. You see, God's salvation today, it's a take it or leave it. God's not forcing anybody to take his salvation. You don't have to be saved. You can turn it down. God says that it's my universe. You're living on my little world, using my sunshine, my water, and my air. And I've worked out a plan of salvation that's true to my character and my nation. And my plan and my program is the one that's going to be carried out. You're a sinner, and I want to save you. I love you. Now, here it is. Take it or leave it. That's what God is saying to a lost world. Well, what's he saying to you? Have you accepted it? Well, I want you to know that I have accepted it. To be right with God, then, means to accept his salvation. I know when I was in school, we had a professor of sociology, and he enjoyed this type of thing, saying, what is right? And that would be his question. And he'd love to bat that little ball around. And who's going to make the rules, he says. Well, I know one thing. That professor's not going to make the rules. Know something else? I'm not going to make the rules either. And by the way, I know something else. You're not going to make the rules. God makes the rules. Take it or leave it. That's God's plan. That's God's program. There's none that are righteous, none right with God. But he has worked out a plan. There's none that doeth good according to God's standard, according to God's method. Now, that's the first thing that he says. That's number one that the judge says. The second is, there's none that understand it. In other words, what he's really saying is this. There's none that acts on the knowledge that he has. There's none that are acting on the knowledge that they have. They're not the person they'd like to be. There's none that seeketh after God. God's not concealed today. God's not playing hide-and-seek with man. God's revealed himself. You remember Paul told the Athenians, the philosophers on Mars Hill, he said, in olden times, God winked at this. But now God commands men everywhere to repent. He's not winking at sin today. God's out in the open telling man he's a sinner and offering salvation. And his salvation is clear, you see. That's what he's saying here. And there's none that seek after God. The anthologies of religion say man's out looking for God. Man's search for God. How fallacious these things are. It's claimed that the evolutionary process is that religion is man's search for God. Well, actually... Religion is man's search for God? No, that's not what the Bible teaches. Believe me, man hasn't found out very much yet about God on his own. 
He hasn't advanced very far in that direction because he's going the wrong way. He's going away from God. Then the fourth charge that God makes is they're all gone out of the way. That is, they've detoured. They've left the way they knew was right. And most ancient tribes have a remembrance and have a tradition that way back at one time they knew the living and true God. Now, I'm talking to folk right now that are listening to me, and you know that you're not doing what you ought to do. And furthermore, you're not going to do it, though you know what it is. You've gone out of the way. That's mankind. And then he says they're altogether become unprofitable. That word unprofitable has to do with overripe fruit, spoiled fruit. They're altogether sour. That's mankind. Man today is like a lot of rotten, corrupt fruit. And there's nothing to me is quite as delicious as a papaya. But you let a papaya pass the ripened stage and become rotten, and I tell you, lush fruit has changed to corrupt fruit. And then he goes on to say, There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Man's not only rotten fruit. This third charge here is a triple negative. Mankind is like a group of travelers who's gone in the opposite direction from the right one, and not one can help the other. Our Lord said it to the religious leaders of his day. You're blind leaders of the blind. That's the picture of mankind. Now, that's what the judge of all the earth says about you and about me and all mankind. Now, Paul transfers us over to God's clinic and into the hands of the great physician. This is a spiritual clinic, and here's what the great physician says concerning us, that we're spiritually sick. Here's the first thing that he says. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they've used deceit, and the poison of asp is under their lips. Verse 13. Now, when you go to the doctor, what's the first thing that he says to you? Well, I have to go in for a regular checkup. And I go in, and it's a ritual for me to go in and sit down in the office of the doctor in a little room where he does his examination. And you know what the first thing that he says to me is when he comes in? He says, open your mouth. You know what he does? He takes a little wooden stick and pushes it around in my mouth, and he looks at my throat. Now, God, the Lord Jesus, the great physician, does that with mankind. And you know what he says? Their throat is an open sepulcher. Did you ever smell corrupt human flesh? Had you ever smelt decaying human flesh? When the little Distelhurst girl in Nashville many years ago was kidnapped, the sheriff of the county was a member of my church. In fact, he was a deacon. He called me up and told me that they had found the body of the little girl and they were going out to exhume it. And he wanted to know if I wanted to go. And, of course, I did. And I went out, and they were just digging up the grave, and that body was corrupt, and it was terrible. I've never been as sick in my life at the odor of corrupt human flesh. And I always think of that in connection with this verse. When God looks down at you, friend, He doesn't say, what a sweet, fine little boy or girl you are. God says, when I look down at you, someone has put it like this. I believe it was Mel Trotter years ago who said, 
if we could see ourselves as God sees us, we couldn't even stand ourselves. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. With their tongue, they use deceit. That's number two. And the second thing that my doctor says to me after he looks at my throat, he says, stick out your tongue. That's what the great physician says to the human family. Stick out your tongue. And when God looks at the tongue of mankind, that means your tongue and mine. Do you know what he says? The poison of asp is under their lips. There's a snake house and a place for reptiles in the zoo down in San Diego. I've been through that several times, and I look at that vicious fang of those diamond-headed rattlers that are there. And I think of the poison that is there. And did you know, friends, right now, if you go and look in the mirror, wait till after the broadcast, go look in the mirror, and you'll see a tongue that is far more dangerous than any diamond-headed rattlesnake. All he can do is that diamond-headed rattlesnake. He can't hurt your reputation at all. He can kill your body, but he can't hurt your reputation. You've got a tongue. And that you can use and you can ruin the reputation of someone else. You can ruin the fair name of some woman. You can ruin the reputation of some man. I think today the most vicious thing in some of our churches is the gossip that's carried on. And I actually advised someone not too long ago not to join a certain church because I happen to know some of the biggest gossips in the world are in that church. And I want to tell you, They have slaughtered the reputation of many individuals. Do you know who they are? They are the spiritual crowd, so-called. I call them the spiritual snobs. That's what they are. But they've got a vicious tongue with their tongue. They've used deceit. And then he says, the poison of ass is under their lips. Adder's poison is under their lips. Oh, how vicious the human mouth is, how terrible it is, how terrible it can be. Now, we speak today, there's so much about we ought to learn to speak in tongues. Well, I agree with that if you mean what I do, provided you mean the kind of a tongue that does not hurt somebody's reputation, that doesn't hurt somebody today. That's the kind of tongue we ought to speak in today. How terrible the human tongue is. And unfortunately, this thing is centered in many of our churches and in Christian circles. Now, will you notice verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, this is the fourth thing, the great position. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit. Oh, how terrible the picture is here. And what does he mean, friends? He means just simply this. That man is prone to curse. And you can listen around you today, and you'll find out what's in the vocabulary of all men. Whether it's a ditch digger or a college professor, they're better at using profanity than they are at using any other language. A man challenged me on that one time when I was pastoring downtown Los Angeles. I said to him, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go out here on the corner, and then the first man comes by, You punch him in the mouth and see what comes out, and I guarantee you what it'll be. Well, may I say, as we move on, in verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. That is, their feet run to evil. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Destruction and misery are in their ways. 
What a picture this is of mankind that we have at this particular point at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery in their ways. The way of peace have they not known. And that's the seventh thing. The way of peace they do not know. Man does not know the way of peace. Well, look about you in the world today. After all these years, he's talking about peace, but he hasn't found it. Read your newspaper. There's no peace in this world. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. This is the last one. Paul seems to sum up all of man's sin in this statement, and this is a picture of man today. He has no fear of God at all. They're living as if God did not exist, and he actually defies God. What a picture of mankind that we have here. Now we come down to the final thing Paul has to say about sin. There are still those who will say, well, we've got the law, and we'll keep the law. We'll hold it. Listen to Paul. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world become guilty before God. You cannot attain righteousness by the law. Mankind cannot come in that way. Man can grab at the law, but it won't help him at all. It won't lift him up. Actually, it does the opposite. To hold on to the law is like a man jumping out of an airplane. Instead of taking a parachute, he takes a sack of cement with him. Well, believe me, the law will pull you down. It condemns man. It's a ministration of death. Therefore, in verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Now, I challenge any person today who believes that you have to keep the law to be saved to take this verse and explain it. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. And that means to be declared righteous. That means to be saved. That means to meet God's standard. You can never do it, my beloved. It's absolutely impossible for mankind to do it. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. Now we've come down to the end of this first section, and we've come to that great Grand Canyon. And now he begins to speak of God's wonderful salvation. We move out of the night into the day. He'll talk about justification by faith, and that's explained in the rest of this chapter. The availability of a righteousness from God for a guilty and sick world. Now, I want you to notice this because this is very, very important for us to see here. But now, what a break we have here. You pass from out of the darkness to light. And I'm going to change this a little because it's important for us to note this. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, this is not the righteousness of God, because God does not share his attributes with anyone. God says that he'll not share his glory with another. He just refuses to do it. And this is not, therefore, the attribute of God. It's not a righteousness of man, because God has already said the righteousness of man is filthy rags in his sight, and God's not taking in dirty laundry. Well, what is it that we have here? Well, this is God's righteousness. This is the righteousness which he provides. 
Christ has become our righteousness. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1.30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness, sanctification and redemption. And again he says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This is something that's very important for us to see. It is this matter of the righteousness that God provides for us sinners. It's very important for us to recognize that God is the one who provides this righteousness. It's not something that you and I can work out, but rather it is something that God has provided for us. A righteousness that God demands, and he also provides it. Now, will you notice this is a righteousness that is apart from the law. That is, you can't get it, friends, but doing something or keeping something. Not even God's law. You can't keep it to begin with. God can't save you by law for the very simple reason. You can't measure up to it. And God can't accept imperfection, and you and I cannot provide perfection. Therefore, he can't save us by law. But the Old Testament witnessed to it, the law witnessed to it, because at the very center of the Mosaic system was a tabernacle where a bloody sacrifice was offered. And that bloody sacrifice was very important. And that bloody sacrifice pointed to Jesus Christ. And then the prophets witnessed to it. What do you think Isaiah is talking about? Who hath believed our report to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And again, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then again, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Both the law and the prophets witness to this righteousness that God would provide in Christ. Now we are told here, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. I used to think that the grace of God came down on mankind like the organ pipes. In the old-fashioned church that I began preaching in, we had a big old organ in the back of the pulpit, and there were little bitty pipes. They didn't go very high, and then there were great ones that went to the ceiling almost. And I thought the grace of God just came down to meet bad sinners all the way, but if you wasn't so bad, didn't go so far. My friends, it has to go all the way to the bottom to get all of us. All of us are sinners, and it's the righteousness which God provides, which is Christ. And we're complete in him. We're absolutely saved in Christ. We're completely lost out of Christ, absolutely lost. There's no such thing as middle ground, friends. There's no such thing as trying to come some other way. Either you're in Christ, and that's what it means to be saved, to be in Christ, or you're completely lost out of Christ. Now you'll notice here something that we probably should back up and say just a word concerning it, because we have a great deal to say about righteousness. Now to be righteous means to be fundamentally right with God. And we're made right with God on his terms. And God provides for us that which we cannot provide. That is the righteousness that we need to stand in his presence. You and I cannot be saved by perfection because God has to demand that. And we are unable to provide it. And he can't save us by imperfection because of who he is. 
He must demand perfection. Therefore, God provides to us what we call righteousness. Now, what is righteousness again? Well, let's begin with some definitions of great men of the past, which I think will be helpful to you. The righteousness of God defined is not the character of God, nor is it the self-righteousness of man as we've seen. And this righteousness comes to us through faith in Christ. But now notice the definition of righteousness. Dr. Cunningham says, Under law, God required righteousness from man. Under grace, he gives righteousness to man. The righteousness of God is that righteousness which God's righteousness requires him to require. That's a deep definition, but it's a good one. The great Dr. Hodge has given us this definition, that righteousness of which God is the author, which is of avail before him, which meets and secures his approval. And then Dr. Brooks gives this definition, that righteousness which the Father required, the Son became, and the Holy Spirit convinces of, and faith secures. And again, Dr. Moorhead, the sum total of all that God commands, demands, approves, and himself provides. And it can't be said, I don't believe any better than the way these men have said it. Now, this righteousness of God is secured, as we've already seen, by faith and not by works. But now listen again to verses 22 and 23. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, let me give you a free rendering of these verses. Even the righteousness from God, which is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all that believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of the approval of God. Now, this is a righteousness that's by faith. It's not by works. Now, this faith the Lord Jesus Christ made clear when they asked him. They said... How can we do the works of righteousness? He answered, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. That's John 6, 28 and 29. And the important thing about securing this righteousness of God is not that there's any merit in your faith or there's merit in just believing. Because actually, faith is not a work on your part. The object of faith is the important thing. Spurgeon put it like this, it's not the hope on Christ which saves you, it's Christ. It's not thy joy in Christ that saves you, it's Christ. And it's not thy faith in Christ that saves you, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. Now, friends, that's very important to nail down to your thinking. And that righteousness is like a garment. It comes down to all, but it only comes upon all that believe. But it's available to everyone. And then he says, it's available to everyone for all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. Now, that doesn't mean that there is not a difference in sinners. I think I can illustrate that with a very homely illustration. When you come to California, and I'm sure some of you are going to, and you would like to play a game with us, we have a game out here that we play. It's called Jumping to Catalina. Now, Catalina is about 20 miles from the shore of California, and it's out in the Pacific, this island is. Now, we'll go down to the pier at Santa Monica, and we'll take a big long run and jump and see who can jump to Catalina. Now, somebody's going to say, but that's a pretty big jump, and I want to tell you it is. Now, we could have a lot of fun. You know, chances are you could jump farther than I could. Say I jumped 10 feet, that'd be pretty good for me, and you jumped 15 feet. And you'd say, look, I jumped farther than you did. That would be true. But you'd get wetter than I would, and you'd have to swim farther back to get to the shore. May I say to you, nobody would jump to Catalina. Now, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody's made Catalina. Nobody's able to come up. Some are better than others, but it's rather childish to play a game like that and say, I jump farther than you are, I'm better than you are, and I'm better than half of the church members. Suppose you are, and I guess you are. But what difference that makes? You have not come up to the glory of God. Now, let me come to the next verse here, and that's verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Freely, here is the same word that is used at the time when the Lord Jesus said, They hated me without a cause. That's John 15:25. That is, they hated me freely. That is, there was no basis for it. What he's saying here, that is, Paul is saying, being justified without a cause. That is, there's no explanation in us. God doesn't see something in us that says, Oh, my, they're such wonderful people. I'll have to do something for them, and pats us on our head. As we've seen before, there's nothing in us that would call out the grace of God other than our great need, and that's what it is, being justified without a cause. And it's by His grace, and that means that there is no merit on our part, and grace is the unmerited favor as it's defined. I like to say it's love in action. And it's through the redemption. Now, redemption is always connected with the grace of God. The reason that God can save you and me is simply because of the fact that Christ redeemed us. He paid a price. He ransomed us. He died upon the cross to make it available for us. You see, justification by faith is actually more than subtraction of our sins. That is forgiveness. It's the addition of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, we're not just merely restored to Adam's former position, but now we're placed in Christ where we shall be throughout the endless ages of eternity, the sons of God. You know, John Bunyan was driven almost to distraction because he realized that he was such a great sinner and he had no righteousness of his own. And he said at that time, when God showed me John Bunyan, as God saw John Bunyan, I no longer confessed I was a sinner, but I confessed that I was sin. From the crown of my head to the sole of my feet, I was full of sin. 
And Bunyan struggled with the problem of how he could stand in God's presence even with his sins forgiven. Where could he gain a standing before God? And so walking through the cornfields one night, as he wrestled with this problem, the words of Paul, who was another great sinner, by the way, who called himself the chief of sinners. And that word of Paul came to him, and his burden rolled off his shoulders. The word from Paul was Philippians 3, 9, "...and be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ." the righteousness which is of God by faith. And when we read Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you're reading actually the story of Bunyan's life. And you remember when Pilgrim came with that great burden on his shoulder through the slough of despond. He didn't know what to do until finally came to the cross, and there the burden rolled off, and he trusted Christ as his Savior. Now, this is the way God saves. It's by grace. This is the fountain from which flows the living waters of God down in this age of grace. And so because of what God has done, putting his son to die, God is able to save by grace. And Paul in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God who's rich in mercy, that means he's got plenty of it, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And Dr. Newell said of that grace, the grace of God is infinite love operating by an infinite means. The sacrifice of Christ and an infinite freedom, unhindered now by the temporary restrictions of the law, so that today a holy God is free to reach down And to whosoever we are, it'll meet our needs. It'll save us in our sins. How wonderful that it is today to know a holy God is free to see those or to save those who will trust in Christ. And Dr. Newell again said, Everything that is connected with God's salvation is glad in its bestowment. It's infinite in its extent. And it's unchangeable in its character. And my friend, it's all available and only available in Christ Jesus. He alone could pay the price. As Peter put it to the nation Israel, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now we come to verses 25, 26, and we read this language. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus." And you'll notice that is faith in his blood. That blood speaks of his life. Without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And that means, well, you could knock a man in the head and kill him. But I tell you, when you put a knife in his body and the blood pours out, that man is a dead man because the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
and the life of Jesus Christ was given. And that blood is a very precious thing, according to Simon Peter. All right, let's move into these verses. Now, because those two verses are filled with words that are, well, they're jawbreakers. That's propitiation. And we have righteousness and remission. And they're all, may I say, four-cylinder words. That is 50-cent words. They're difficult. But actually, don't be too frightened by them. When we boil them down to our size, we find out that we have in these two verses the very marrow of theology. That's what Calvin called them, the marrow of theology. And there's not probably in the whole Bible a passage that sets forth more profoundly the righteousness of God, and that's the statement of Calvin. Listen to him. Now, God hath set him forth. You see, God is seen in this passage as the sole architect of salvation, and he is the one that today is able to save. You and I can't save. No religion can save you. No church can save you. Paul said to the Corinthians, all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. He did it. Now he's giving to us the ministry of reconciliation. And so all the holy God is asking you and me to do today is to be reconciled to God. You don't have to do anything to soften God's heart. I have a friend, he was an evangelist for years, he always liked to get people to cry. I used to ask him how many tears you'd have to shed to soften God's heart. Oh, he says, don't be ridiculous. I told him, I'm not being ridiculous. You are. You say you've got to come down to the altar and shed some tears. My friend, God's heart's already soft. All you have to do is come. He's reconciled to you. He says to you, be ye reconciled to him. Now, he's been set forth, Paul says here. That is... He's exhibited or displayed. And the tense of the verse here actually points back to the time, 1900 years ago, that he has been set forth. He's set forth to be the propitiation. And you will recall that the veil of the temple hid the mercy seat, and only the high priest could go in there. But today the cross of Christ is exhibited it's in public display, and it's out where the world can see it today, and you can get to it, my friend. Someone has said it's level ground at the foot of the cross. And it's interesting, the cross has become the popular symbol of Christianity, and that's not an accident. Now, he's the propitiation. There's a good word for you. Now, don't let that word frighten you, because although it sounds like a very profound truth, and it is, all in the world that this word means is that it is mercy seat. He has set Christ before as a mercy seat. And you will find over in the ninth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews, and I think I'll just turn there and share that verse with you because it's very important. Verse 5 in Hebrews 9, it says, And over it, speaking of the mercy seat, and over it the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. And that word for mercy seat is the same word that we have here. Now, Christ has been set forth as a mercy seat. You see, the thing that 
poor publican needed. You know, he cried out because he'd been shut out because he became a publican. He couldn't go to the temple. There was no mercy seat for him. And what he really prayed was, our translation says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all right. But actually what he's saying is, oh God, if there was only a mercy seat for me, a poor publican to come to. And now what Paul is saying here, there is on display a mercy seat for anyone and everyone. It's wonderful to know today that we have a holy God who in joy and in satisfaction and delight can hold out to the world a mercy seat. And he doesn't save you reluctantly. If you come, he saves you wholeheartedly, abundantly. Some people tell me I have to search for something after I'm saved. I have to seek something. My friend, when I came to Jesus, I got the whole ball of wax. Oh, how good he was. You see, he didn't hold back anything. He says, come, I can accept you. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6:37. Now, that's the very wonderful thing. The publican was shut out. And actually, you and I were shut out from a holy God. But the way now has been opened up for us by his blood. And he says here something that is quite interesting. He says, "...to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past." Now, that doesn't mean your sins and my sins of the past. It means the sins of those who live before the cross. You see, back in the Old Testament, they brought a little lamb. And I'm sure you don't take a little lamb to church to be sacrificed. It'd be sinful today. But back then, before Christ came, it was required. The law required it. Now, that little lamb pointed to the coming of Christ. No one back in those days believed that the little lamb could take away sins. I don't think any of them did. For instance, when Abel brought a little lamb to God, and you had been there and you'd said, Abel, do you think this little lamb's going to take away your sin? I think he would have told you, no. And you would have said then, why did you bring it? And he said, well, God required it. God commanded us to bring it. Well, we would have said to him, I didn't read that in Genesis. And he would have told us then, you should go to Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And how did he do it? By faith. Well, we're told faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10:17. That's the only way he could have brought that sacrifice by faith, was for God to tell him to bring it. And that is what God did. Now, you would have said to him specifically, what do you think God has in mind, Abel? And I think he would have said this, well, God has told my mother that there's coming a Savior. We don't know when, but there's coming one. And until he comes, we're to do this, because we're to come by faith. And so the sins which were past means that up to the time when Christ died, God saved on credit. God never saved Abraham by offering a sacrifice. God never saved any of them by bringing a sacrifice a sacrifice pointed to Christ, and when Christ came, he paid all of that of the past. Not only the sins of the past, but also the sins this side of the cross. For verse 26 says, "...to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of them which believeth in Jesus." Now, this side of the cross, we don't bring a sacrifice, but you're to trust in Christ and his blood.
Now he raises a question. He says, where's boasting man? If God is saving today by faith in Christ and not by your merit, your works, then where's boasting? Well, what is it that you and I have to crow about? We can't even boast of the fact that we're fundamental. A lot of us do it. We're nothing to glory in. Paul says here, where is boasting? And the answer is this question. It's excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Now, follow this. This means the law is here in the first instance, not actually restricted to the Old Testament, but he means the principle of law, any law. Anything that you think that you can do. And the second reference, of course, is to the law that excludes the Old Testament law. And it means simply a rule or principle of faith. In other words, God has the human race not on the merit system, but on the basis of where you believe what he has done for us. And therefore, it excludes boasting. In verse 28, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without, apart from the works of the law. Now, actually, this is not a conclusion that Paul is coming to or even summing up what he said, but he's giving an explanation of why boasting is excluded. Why? Well, here we have man's justified by faith. That's the basis. And now Paul drives a clincher. In other words, he not only drives the nail in, but he turns it over and clinches it. Listen to him. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. In other words, did God belong to the Jews alone and not also belong to the Gentiles? Paul says, yes, of the Gentiles. Now listen to this. This is a cogent argument. If justification is by the law, then God does belong to the Jews. But if justification is by faith, then he's the God of the Jews and Gentiles. Now notice the logic of this. If the Jew persisted in this position, then there must be two gods, one of the Jews, one of the Gentiles. But the Jew would not allow this. He was a monotheist. That is, he believed in one God, and probably the greatest statement that ever was given to the nation Israel was Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, Jehovah, our Elohim is one Jehovah. And that was the clarion message he gave in the pagan world in his day before Christ came. Now, verse 30. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. In other words, there's only one God. And in the Old Testament, he gave man the law. Man fell, but he didn't save them by keeping the law. It was always by the sacrifice that he brought in faith, pointing to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice verse 31. Paul is not through with his argument. He says, Now, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Now, the reference to the law, I think, brings in another meaning of this word. It's not restricted to the Mosaic system here. Neither does it refer to just any law. Rather, it refers to the entire Old Testament revelation. Faith excluded the works of the law. But did it abrogate the entire Old Testament revelation? Of course not. Paul will demonstrate in the next chapter, that is, in chapter 4, that's coming up next time, by an Old Testament illustration, two men, Abraham and David, that it did not exclude that because these two men were saved not by law but by faith. To begin with, Abraham was born and lived and died 400 years before the law was given. 
You could never put Abraham on the basis of the Mosaic law. It wasn't given in his day. God saved him on a different basis, which is by faith. And somebody says, well, then what about David? Well, very honestly, do you think David could have been saved by keeping the law? Of course he couldn't. The Old Testament made it very clear that David broke the law, and yet God accepted him. Well, he did it by faith. What about you and what about me? His question to you and me today, for he has the world shut up to it, what will you do with my son who died for you on the cross? I hope you give the right answer.